Good morning. It's good to see you all. If you would please take the Bibles out in the pews in front of you or open your own Bible to Mark chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, you can find it on page 600. In 99. And I know that Pastor Ty read the email uh, that Pastor Derek had gotten last week. How great of news is that? Amen? That's wonderful. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're blessed by today's sermon, feel free. Pastor Ty at SouthShores.org. Uh, you can email him the ways that today's sermon have blessed you. Uh, if you aren't blessed by today's sermon, you're probably creative. You can make something up. And so throw those his way. Uh, we've been in a series... Uh, called We Are the Church, Growing Fully Disciples, Fully Devoted Followers of Jesus Christ. And in this series, we've been focusing each week on a particular activity that Christ has called the church to be active in doing. We've seen that the church is called to be worshiping God. The church is called to be fellowshipping with one another. The church is called to be serving the needs of others. And last week, Pastor Derek reminded us that the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And today is the last activity we will be focusing on, and the activity is this, evangelism. The church is called to be an evangelizing people. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the word evangelism or evangelist, I think of one particular man named John Harper. John Harper was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and he grew up in a Christian home, and he became, like me, himself a a Christian as a teenager. And from the start of his conversion as a teenager, he set out to do one thing, to tell people the good news about Jesus so that they could be saved. So John Harper became a passionate and successful evangelist as he grew. So successful was he that his reputation spread across the world, and he was even invited to other countries, the United States being one of those when Moody Bible Church in Chicago invited him to come preach a series of evangelistic sermons. And his preaching was so successful that they invited him back again a few years later. So in 1812, with his six-year-old daughter named Nana, they hopped onto a beautiful brand new ship going from England to America. The ship was named the Titanic. As you apparently know, uh, the Titanic would never reach the United States, but would sink along the way. Thankfully, Nana was saved because her brave and loving father made sure that she was safe on a lifeboat as the ship sunk. But the only way that we know about what happened to John Harper after this is from the testimony of a young Scotsman who stood up to speak at a prayer meeting months later. And he tells the story like this. I was clinging to some floating debris in the water and suddenly a wave brought a man near me. His name was John Harper. He too was holding a piece of wreckage. And John called out to me, Man, are you saved? No, I'm not, I replied. He shouted back immediately, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He will save you. The waves took Harper away, but a little later he washed back beside me again. Are you saved now? John Harper asked. No, I answered. Son, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Then losing hold on the wood, Harper sank into the dark, cold water. 
And the Scotman recalls, And there alone in the night, with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. And when you hear that story, two things may come to your mind like they do mine. One is John Harper is an amazing man. Number two is I am no John Harper. I am no evangelist like that. If anything, I could be titled a reluctant evangelist. Oftentimes in my mind and head, when I see a particular individual, I may ask in my head, should I talk to him or her about Jesus? And oftentimes my own mind will come back with the answer, no. Oftentimes when I sit on planes and I have two seatmates next to me who are locked in position, just prime territory for evangelistic ministry, they can't leave me, only at great peril to themselves. Yet oftentimes I choose to remain quiet. Stay focused on what I want to do in those few hours. Even when opportunities to evangelize come up, whether someone seems to be receptive or is asking spiritual questions, I don't always take them. As one pastor confessed, I too confessed this morning, if there's a time in the future when God reviews all of our missed evangelistic opportunities, I fear that I could cause more than a minor delay in eternity. You see, but this morning... Though evangelism, the topic, can be extremely guilt-inducing and burdensome for Christians to think and talk about, what I would like to do is, as we look into God's Word together, can have a renewed passion and renewed understanding of what evangelism is. And to do just that, we will go to God's Word. And so if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 20, it's going to be our text for this morning. And I'd love for you to read along with me. That way you know I'm not just throwing out my opinions up here, but God is speaking. Verse 14, we read this. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, this passage is somewhat of a theological pinata. There's a lot of good candy in there for us to munch on, and we have too much candy in here for our time this morning. So, what I would like to do for our purposes is come to this text and ask four questions about evangelism. Because this passage has much to say about the topic. And if you are a note taker, these are the four questions that we're going to ask, the four headings that we'll be following. Number one is this, who are the evangelists? Number two, what is evangelism? Number three, why do we evangelize? And number four, how do we evangelize? If you couldn't write all those down right now, don't worry, they'll be up on the screen as we go through. So our first question is this. According to Jesus, who 
are the evangelists. Now, I don't know about you, but when the word evangelist comes into my mind, all kinds of confusing memories and emotions arise. I remember one time my grandparents, Glenn and Barbara Dill, hi grandma, um, my grandparents took me and my brothers to a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade in San Diego. I believe it was in Qualcomm Stadium, which is a rare privilege for people in my generation because Billy's not preaching anymore. And I remember as a young man seeing Billy talk about Jesus and calling people to trust in Jesus. Billy was an evangelist. And so when I heard the word evangelist growing up, I thought of old Billy, the kind man that talked a lot about Jesus. As I grew a little bit older and started watching a little bit more TV, I happened chanced upon this channel that had this lady who called herself an evangelist. Uh, she had very eccentric makeup and an eccentric hairdo. It looks like she lost a paintball gun fight. Um, and she called herself an evangelist. And so now for me, this young man, team evangelist, was made up of Billy and the paintball gun lady. And then as I grew older, I would hear various people talk about either TV evangelists or traveling evangelists, and they would use choice words for them like crooks and charlatans and hucksters. And so for me, Team Evangelist was made up of Billy Graham, paintball gun lady, crooks, charlatans, and hucksters. Needless to say, I was a very confused young man when it came to the term evangelist, and maybe you are too. Who are the evangelists according to Jesus? And thankfully, Jesus isn't confused about the topic. Look what Jesus says to the disciples in verse 17. As he comes to them, they are fishing, and to Simon and Andrew, he says this, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. His choice of words was understandable. They're out there fishing. They were fishermen. And so Jesus says, I want you, two fishermen, to come and follow me. And what I will make you do is a version of what you're doing right now. I will make you not fish for fish, but I'll make you fish for people. Jesus is saying, I will make you into evangelists, into those who tell the good news that others may be saved. And the term fishing for evangelism is pretty a great picture, except for this one minor contrasting detail. When uh, the, the Dana Wharf and the fishing boats go out and they catch fish, what they do is they catch fish that are living and then make them dead. But as the church of Jesus Christ goes out to this world, as these disciples would go and fish from men, they do the opposite. They would take dead fish and cause them to be alive. You see, Jesus calls these two, and actually these four, he calls them to the work of evangelism. See this, the call to follow me is inextricably connected to the promise that they will become fishers of men. To say it as simply as I can that in being a follower of Jesus, you are also a fisher for Jesus. And this is an important thing for the church to hear, because sometimes in the church, when we think about evangelism and discipleship, we can think about two different separate groups of people, right? We've got the disciplers who, you know, kind of stay in the home, and they just kind of talk with one another, and they help to grow each other in their faith, but they never travel outside the doors and the safety of the church. They are disciplers. And then we have the evangelists, which in the Christian mind could be sort of the spiritual version of the Navy SEALs. They're the tip of the spear. They're going into uncharted lands and uncharted territories, telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we could say, oh, I'm not an evangelist. I'm just a disciple. 
But Jesus doesn't give us the ability to make that demarcation. For Jesus, to follow him means you've been enlisted in the work of evangelism. To be a follower of Jesus means that you are a fisherman for Jesus. And also this passage shows us that evangelism is not just an activity reserved for the pros. Sometimes we could think, I'm going to leave the things of evangelism to guys like Billy Graham and Greg Laurie and Dana, no, Pastor Ty, and all those other really good guys who are preaching the message of Jesus. They're paid, they're trained, they're schooled. Let them do it. I'm not going to do it. But again, Jesus does not reserve the work of evangelism for pros. He gives that a task to all people who would follow him. So this morning when we ask the question, who are the evangelists, I want you to hear this clearly. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an evangelist for Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a fisherman. Not every Christian is a fisherman, but every Christian is a man-fisher, so to speak. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. If you're a brand new believer in middle school or high school, or if you're a mature believer, it doesn't matter if you're in the pulpit or sitting in the pew. If you are a Christian, you're an evangelist. If you're a follower, you're a fisher. And so in hearing this, some of you may be excited, but I think a lot more of you may be uneasy a little pushed back, you may be thinking, if, 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 I'm, if I'm to evangelize, then I need to get a clear understanding as to what evangelism even is. Which leads us to our next question. What is evangelism? What is evangelism? Confusion oftentimes comes when asked questions like these. And that's okay because I particularly have the spiritual gift of confusion. <laughs> it actually runs in the Dill family. Um, my uncles can attest and uh, when I go to Ikea I get lost all I want is the meatballs that's all I want but I get lost when I take things home from Ikea the confusion just increases right? the nice little Swedish drawing on you know, the man here he's trying to help me but I'm confused I'm sorry I don't speak that language I'm sorry I'm confused the stock market confuses me the women in my family confuse me because they're so much smarter and prettier than I am. Grandma, Aunt Laura, I see you. My wife, is she here? No, she knew I was preaching. She's not here. Um, when it comes to thinking about evangelism, I think confusion is not just something that I have the territory on. I think a lot of us may have that as well. So what is evangelism? And before saying what it is, it may be helpful for clarity's sake to say what it is not. Because there's a lot of things that are in the church that are maybe partnering with evangelism. They may supplement evangelism, but those activities themselves are not evangelism. So I have four, uh, very briefly, four things that evangelism is not. First, evangelism is not your testimony. Oftentimes Christians can think, if I tell people how Jesus has changed my life, I've evangelized them. But that's not quite true because your testimony is mainly a story about what Jesus has done in your life. But evangelism is a story about what Jesus has done on the cross for all people. Your testimony is mainly a story about you. But evangelism is mainly a story about Jesus. 
And so though your testimony can have the gospel within it, and the best kind of testimonies do, your testimony itself is not evangelism. Second, evangelism is not apologetics. Apologetics is the practice of of defending and promoting Christianity to an unbelieving world. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend or to give an answer. So apologetics defends the Christian faith. It gives an answer to an unbelieving world for the reasonableness and the truthfulness of Christianity. But apologetics does not necessarily share the message of Christianity. You can defend the reliability of the Bible. You can defend the truthworthiness and the historicity of the resurrection. But as you're doing those, you're not necessarily sharing the message of how God saves people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, evangelism is not good works. Evangelism is not good works. Our good works as Christians, our kindness, our service, our morality, may make Christianity attractive to people, but our good works can never communicate anything about what Jesus has actually done for us. Or to say it this way, our lives may show the power and the effect of the gospel and how Christ has changed us, but our lives cannot communicate the message of the gospel. If you think good works are, uh, are, is evangelism, and just ha- if you live nicely in front of other people, think about this. If you're just nice in front of other people and you don't tell them why you have a changed life, then you are no more different than your very moral atheist neighbor or even the Mormon down the street. Our good works aren't communicating the distinct message of the gospel. Therefore, our good works are not evangelism. And lastly, evangelism is not the fruit of evangelism. What do I mean by that? Evangelism is not the fruit of evangelism. I don't know if you've had this experience when you want to share the, the, the message of Jesus Christ with someone and you don't because you think, I, I think they may reject the message and therefore I've failed as an evangelist. Oftentimes we think evangelism happens when people become Christians, but that's not true. People becoming Christians is the fruit of evangelism, but not itself the task of evangelism. Maybe a picture will help. Um, Mailmen do not fail at their job if the people they deliver mail to never open the letters. Mailmen are not responsible for what the people do with the mail that they've received, whether they receive it or they reject it. Mailmen have one job. What is that job? Deliver the mail. Regardless of what it's done by the recipients, the mailman is to deliver the mail. In the same way, evangelism is delivering the message of the gospel. And if you deliver that message, regardless if it's received or rejected, evangelism has successfully happened. So that's what evangelism is not, but what is evangelism? Thankfully, again, as we look into Mark, Jesus exemplifies for us what evangelism looks like. Look in Mark chapter 14. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is evangelism. What is Jesus doing here? In the simplest of ways, here is the definition of what Jesus is doing and the definition of evangelism. And it's on the screen for you right here. Evangelism 
is teaching the gospel with the goal to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the goal to persuade. Pastor Derek said last week that he's a fan of clunky definitions. I am too. They usually increase accuracy, but they decrease memorability. And so there's more to say about evangelism than just this, but listen, there's not less to say. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the goal to persuade. As you see Jesus in Mark, that's exactly what he was doing. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and calling people to repent and believe. He was teaching the gospel that people would respond willingly. And so for us, let's break this down very briefly so we can see the robustness of what this definition holds for us. Number one is evangelism is teaching. It's teaching. Evangelism necessitates the use of words. There is not a teacher who will sign up to teach a high school class with the intent on never speaking. Even in American Sign Language classes, words are necessary to help the students understand what is being said. Teaching requires words. In the same way, though our good works may adorn the message of the gospel, they can never explain the message of the gospel. We need to teach others the gospel, and in order to do so, we have to use words. We have to use words. Number two, though, is we're teaching. What are we teaching? We're not teaching chemistry. We're not teaching physics. We're not teaching photography. We're teaching the gospel. The gospel is the specific message that evangelists, that the church is tasked with teaching the non-believing world. And again, you see Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. And in his day, the gospel that he had to proclaim was in seed form. The gospel he was proclaiming is God's kingdom is coming. Turn away from your sins and believe that God's kingdom is coming. For us, that good news is filled in a little bit more because we know how God's kingdom has come and we know how one enters God's kingdom. On this side of the cross, the good news that we are tasked with explaining is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all who would believe. That is the good news. So some of you may be even just asking So help me out here. What is then the gospel? Give you one of those questions we don't like to be asked because we're not always ready with a very, you know, quick answer. So let me allow you to, let me give you a helpful way for explaining the gospel, whether you're in a 20 second elevator ride or you have six hours to spend with someone having spiritual conversation. And if you actually look in your notes, you can see these four things and the verses that teach each of them to help you in your evangelism. So here's the gospel in four words. Word number one, the gospel starts with God. The gospel starts with God as our loving creator, ruler, and judge of all the earth. And he is the God who has created us in his image to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. The gospel starts with God. Secondly, the second word is man. Though God has created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, mankind, you and I, and everybody on this earth, past, present, and future, has rebelled against God and has sinned against God by breaking His law and by living a life looking to do what we want to do instead of what He wants us to do. And as a result of this sin, we've alienated ourselves from God. And we now are under God's righteous judgment. That's the bad news of the good news. 
And listen, if the good news is ever going to be good to other people, they need to know the bad news too. The good news will never be sweet to those for whom sin is never bitter. So God, man, and then here's what I love. The gospel doesn't start there. Doesn't start stop with it doesn't stop there with the message of you're all going to hell. No, there's a beautiful but that's inserted right there. I tell my junior hires, I love big butts, especially when they're in the Bible. <laughs> and so God has made man, man has rebelled, but Instead of giving us the judgment that we deserve, God has sent His one and only Son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to die the death that we deserve so that God could both punish our sin in Jesus and forgive our sin in us. And God rose Jesus from the dead so that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that His sacrifice on the cross was accepted. God, man, Jesus, and lastly response. You see, the gospel is not a message that we give just to pique curiosity or inform people. The gospel is a message we give that demands a response. The gospel is not a neutral message, but it stands in front of every man and woman and it offers a fork in the road. It says you either go God's way or your own way. And God's way looks like this, repenting of sin and believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you can shorten this simple message, God, man, Jesus response, into one beautiful sentence. The gospel is the news that God will save any sinner who repents and trusts in Jesus. Amen? This is the message that we as the church have been entrusted to share with the world. This and this alone is the bait on every hook of every man fisher. This is what we have to offer the world, church. So it's teaching the gospel, but not just for any reason. We teach it with the goal to persuade. Again, we don't teach this gospel to inform intellects or pique curiosity or make people feel warm and tingly inside. We teach the gospel to persuade people to trust Jesus, be saved, and follow him. So the disciples were fishing. It was their job. And Jesus comes to them. Obviously, I think Mark, Mark implies that the disciples were already familiar with who Jesus was and what he has done. They probably heard him preach, maybe even had conversations with him prior. That's why Jesus maybe came to these men specifically, because he knew them. But when Jesus gives them that, that call, come and follow me, this is then their response. Look in verse 18. When, or sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 18. At once... They left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So the disciples are fishing. They're doing the thing that puts food on the table, that puts clothes on the back, that gives shelter over their head. They, and also, the disciples, at least with James and John, it was a family business in which there was probably heritage and tradition and pride. They're fishing. Jesus comes, and with one sentence, he detaches them from the job that is their livelihood and pride. And he says, put down your nets to catch fish, and I'll teach you how to catch 
men. Here's my question. Why in the world would the disciples ever say yes? Jesus isn't promising a paycheck. Jesus doesn't have the family heritage they probably have intertwined in that business. Even James and John, they don't just leave their nets, but who do they leave? Their father. Could you imagine what Zebedee was thinking at that moment? Holding the nets and his two boys drop off and go walking away and he's just left with the servants going, who's that guy? Why would they do that? Or even more, why would we do that? Why would we want to evangelize? Why would we want to become fishers of men? Why would we take our focus off other lucrative enterprises and begin to take up the mantle of man fishing? Well, I think as I ask that question, a lot of you may be saying, I don't know why we would, but I sure do know why I don't. I've got a ton of reasons why I am not particularly interested or skilled in the art of man fishing. Maybe you have reasons like this. I don't evangelize because I feel unequipped. I feel unequipped. You may think doing evangelism, you'll feel like a, a puppy running with the big dogs. You'll feel like a Pop Warner football player running with the pros. The pads don't fit. The cleats don't fit. They're faster. They're stronger. And they could really do some damage because you're not skilled to play at that level. You may want to evangelize, but it stops you because you think that you may say the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong person, even though you may have the right intention. A lot of us feel unequipped. Others of us, if we're honest, we just have our focus elsewhere. We just have our focus elsewhere. You see, if some of us were honest, we confess that we don't evangelize because other things take up our attention and our focus. Whether things at work or things at home, the daily duties and routines, the schedules, the busyness, the pressures of life, and all of a sudden these things start coming on us and it crowds our schedule, it crowds our thinking, and now evangelism is one of the things that in our mind just kind of slips to the outside and fades away. A lot of us have had the world's priorities climb over heaven's priorities in our lives. And then a lot of us don't evangelize just because we're plain scared. (laughs) Is that you? I know that's me. Maybe I'm the only person. But a lot of us are just plain scared, and we're scared for a good reason because we realize the message of Jesus Christ is not a neutral message. It's a message that says something very harsh to people who are not believers. You are a sinner condemned under God's righteous judgment, and the only hope you have is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life. That's not necessarily a message you open up in the first time you meet somebody. That's a message that has claws. That's a message that means something. That's a message that's not neutral. And so we're scared to share that message with others because we are afraid of being rejected or made fun of or sidelined or stumped or thought to be weird. And we're not from Portland, and so being weird is not a cool thing for us. Right? And so we don't evangelize because we really, really, really care about being negatively affected. So we're silent. But here's what I love to do. These obstacles are real. And they're heavy. And they're significant. They affect each one of us in different ways at different times. But instead of pouring vinegar on your wounds of guilt or sense of inadequacy, I want to attract you to the work and ministry of evangelism by helping you see 
that it is truly sweet like honey. Because I think if you see the sweetness and the privilege that evangelism is, these obstacles won't be hard to overcome. And so here's four reasons why we evangelize. Number one, we evangelize because we love Jesus. Amen? We love Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, The love of Christ controls us. Is that your Christianity? Is your Christianity controlled by the love of Christ or is it controlled by guilt? Is it controlled by fear? Is it controlled by duty? No, for, the, for, the, for Paul and for all of Christianity, the motive, the fuel, the wind and the sails of our Christianity is the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We evangelize because we want the name of Jesus Christ to be known, to be trusted, to be worshipped, and to be honored in this world. We evangelize because the love of Jesus Christ compels us to the work. Second, we evangelize because we love non-believers. If you're a non-believer in this morning, I want you to hear me say, Welcome, friend. We're so glad that you are here, and we hope you continue to join us. But the task of our evangelism, don't misunderstand it, it is not because we look down on you condescendingly, thinking if only you would come up to the heights that we've achieved. No, Christians evangelize out of love for those who do not believe in Jesus. I read recently of an elderly man who got on the freeway at night going the wrong direction. He didn't know he was going the wrong direction. Thankfully, he realized his error quickly and he pulled off to the side of the road and he got help. But this is the question I'd love to ask you. What would love do in such a situation for such a man? If you had the ability to talk with that man to somehow get his attention as he's going the wrong way, what would love do? Would it sit by idly saying, he's an adult, he's responsible for what he wants to do? Would you stand back saying, I don't want to tell him to turn around because he may get angry. He may be embarrassed. No. You know the answer. Love would do everything it can to wave him down, to call him down, to get his attention that he would turn around because he's heading straight into destruction. And if we do not want him to be destroyed, we will scream, we will shout, we will do everything we can to say, turn around. And in the very same way, with the same desires and attitude, the church evangelizes this world. We scream and shout to a world that's going the wrong direction and we say, turn around and find in Jesus forgiveness for your sins and life eternal. It's for love that we evangelize. Thirdly, we evangelize because we love, non, or we love believers too. Evangelizing actually strengthens and encourages other believers that see us evangelizing. Frank Ciccarelli was speaking about his time at Home Depot where he said a lot of people think it's weird for a middle-aged man to work at Home Depot, but I love it because Home Depot provides me with an opportunity to share the gospel with other customers and with other co-workers. And he told me a list of stories that he had sharing the good news with other people. And by the end of that list, I was so inspired, I was so strengthened, I was so pumped up that I was ready to charge hell itself with my squirt guns. That's how it happened. And so when we evangelize, other believers see us and they're strengthened and they're emboldened to join us in the work. And lastly, we evangelize because we want to witness God's power. 
evangelizing provides us a front row seat to see the power of God work in the hearts of people. I remember in high school I started a Bible study uh, to reach my friends with the good news of Jesus. And I saw a friend as I was going home to prepare. A friend was walking to his car and I hadn't yet talked to him. And so I turned my car and screeched around like only high schoolers can do. And I came up beside him and I said, Jake, do you want to go to Bible study tonight? And immediately when I said that, I felt stupid. I said, man, he's going to make fun of me. He's going to think I'm a dork. He's never going to want to talk to me again. Why did I invite him to Bible study? And in my own little pity party, I heard his voice respond, I would love to come to your Bible study. And I said, really? <laughs> Later on that night as we were having Bible study, I was butchering the Gospel of John for everybody. And I was trying to make my way through the message of the Gospel. And I was so deflated because I thought I was doing such a terrible job that by the end I said, you know, and guys, if any of you, you know, wants to like repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, know that he, he holds life for you today. And if you trust him, he'll save you. Amen. <laughs> And I just wanted to walk out of the room. As everybody scurried out of the room and I walked out to close up for the night, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned around and it was Jake with tears in his eyes. And I said, did someone punch you in the nose? What's going on? And he said to me, Dana, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior tonight. I want to become a Christian. And I said, really? <laughs> you see, that night I had a front row seat to see the life transforming power of God work in the heart of my friend. God used my powerless words to powerfully change the heart of my friend. And so as we end, I would just like to encourage you to the work of evangelism with this distinction. In evangelism, there is work you're called to do and there's work that God's called to do. The work you're called to do is to be the mailman. The work of the church is to touch the ears of people with the message of the gospel and always remember that God alone can change their hearts through the power of the gospel. And so as a church, I pray and I hope that we would become a fishing boat. That we as the church would not be known to be a beautiful church on the hill, but we would be known to be a light on the hill. And I pray that people would not praise our church because of the view we have of an ocean, but because of the view we give them of Jesus Christ. Church, let us be an evangelizing church. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word with my, my brothers and sisters. And I pray, Lord, that as we are thinking about this, it would not leave us as we walk out of this room tonight. I pray, Lord, as we're thinking about this, it would walk with us to our lunches, to our homes, and that, Lord, you would call us to the glorious work of man-fishing that others may be transferred from death to life. Lord, that many may be added to the number of your church and that you, Lord, would have all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are we blessed? All righty. Pastor Dana, good.